Welcome to another special topic episode of the Olefins Weekly Wrap-Up, a podcast by IHS Market. Today is Wednesday, February 23rd. I am Hayabat Niji. Today, I am joined by Joelle Morales, Executive Director for America's Poly Olefins, and Carlo Barasa, Executive Director of North America Light Olefins, for a special webinar recap episode. Welcome to the podcast, both of you. Thanks. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for coming back on here. We've had you guys come before, and I know you just finished the webinar, so thanks for taking the time to talk to us right after. Um, before we get into the conversation, Carlo, your audio cut off during the webinar. What happened? I know it was so embarrassing. I was just, I was sitting there just talking to myself for a few seconds, and then all of a sudden I'm getting all these chat messages. <laughs> your audio cut out. I'm frantically trying to dial back in and then get in, but apparently it wasn't as awkward as I think it was, right? Joel, I mean, you guys- No, no, I, I think secretly you just wanted to give polypropylene more time, but uh, no, it went, <laughs> it went fine. I think it was a, a nice, actually, maybe we think about doing that in the future, a little bit of propylene, some PP, and then come back to propylene and kind of tie it all full circle. I, I like that, we should do that. Yeah, it was definitely a graceful transition. Um, this is the first joint webinar in such a long time, and it was jam-packed with lots of information and audience questions, which we will take on a bit later. But let's start with a quick summary of the topics you guys covered. Uh, Carlo, can you touch on some of the high points for ethylene and uh, propylene? Yeah, sure. So on the ethylene side, uh, the biggest point that we wanted to raise was crude oil, right? And crude oil is has been very volatile lately uh, i think we'll we'll answer a couple questions on that a little bit later uh, but crude oil is on the rise but so is naphtha and lpg um, that's uh, lending more advantage to ethane based uh, production here in the us and so given the advantage that the us producers have there's there's all indications that they'll run of course joel may talk about a you know, the, the export constraints that are currently happening, but at least from a dollars and cents perspective, uh, ethane producers or ethane-based producers uh, should should be running because uh, they have the advantage. Um, the other thing that, uh, that uh, we wanted to raise uh, during the webinar was that um, ethylene exports should grow, but at this point we're, we're getting to uh, a level that uh, we're at essentially max rates from a monomer export perspective. The arbitrages are there, uh, especially out to Europe, uh, but uh, we're pretty much maxed out. So really high production of ethylene, high exports, uh, we're starting to see some pressure on prices, but because of the ethane advantage, uh, there's still a significant amount of margin there. I say significant, significant to historical standards during high capacity periods. Um, and so now inventories uh, are are on the high side, but uh, just given where we are from a derivative standpoint, I think I think inventories uh, are, are high, but days of supply have been pretty much flat to, to declining. Uh, those are the key messages for ethylene, at least from a propylene standpoint. Uh, I typically like doing the whole what's happened since the last time we met, and um, you know I, I made the case that inventories rebalanced uh, via uh, a steep drop-off in demand, not only for, 
for PP, which Joel will talk about, but also non-PP uh, had a drop off in demand throughout the second half, but they did turn it around in the last month of the year. And uh, really the East versus West dynamic is still in play. Uh, we've been talking about this for over a year and it's largely borne out to be what we thought it would be at the beginning of 2021, um, where oversupply in the East stands in stark contract to tight markets in the West. Um, we also, from a U.S. perspective, we're also seeing a high levels of capacity loss uh, as it relates to propylene production. Uh, we'll see that at the first half of the year, but uh, in the second half of the year, we're expecting better capacity availability, which should lead to uh, higher levels of inventories, especially uh, when factoring in that that uh, uh, polymers, polymer imports should increase. And again, Joel will talk a little bit more about that. Demand, what we call demand, which is uh, derivative production, uh, we expect it to grow significantly, close to 7%. But there are a lot of risk, and I think that's when my audio cut out during the webinar because uh, maybe teams didn't like the fact that I talked about the end of the world. But <laughs> yeah, I mean that's uh, the risks are starting to mount. So there's there's definitely downside cases that we need to consider from demand, and and really when we took look at pricing relationships, uh, they have reverted to historical levels or to historical norms. Um, but the greater upside risk, and it's a very same theme for on the ethylene side, the greater upside risk is really crude oil. So I think that gives you sort of the high bullet points of the webinar for the elephant side. So I'll kick it over to Joel so he can talk about polymers. Sure. So on the polymer side, if we really just stay in, in North America, I just spent a quite a bit of time talking about how the world is separated right now the west and the east and it's separated by this escalation in global freight costs to bring in material from asia china primarily into the local markets historically speaking there was always a concern that u.s polyethylene exports for example could find their way back here in simplest form as a plastic bag and so you'd all you, you can never quite see the north american price get to a certain poise higher than Asia, and that kind of set off alarms that you were going to risk some of your domestic demand because you'd lose that domestic demand because it'd be served by a Chinese converter and end up being back here. But with Global Freight doing what it did in 2021 at our new elevated levels, the relationships between North America polyolefin pricing and Asia have, have changed. So buyers they kind of do the math and look back historically and say, well, if I go back to 2005, 2008, 2017, with all these major weather events and look at how the market responded, they're expecting big price declines. Now, what we're arguing is, okay, in the past, we never had this dynamic of high global freight, number one. In the past, we weren't coming off years in which we'd seen the best domestic demand growth in over a decade because of all the behavior changes and um, strong economic performance uh, last year. So when you take into consideration higher freight, stronger local demand, our, our view is that producers will not take their pricing below the import alternative. 
And that's what they've done in the past. The difference now is the import alternative is a lot higher. And what that does for polyolefin producers, both PE and PP, is it shows us a, a price forecast where, yes, prices are correcting because both are seeing new capacity, but it's not correcting to the levels that we'd seen previously. And now this dynamic of higher oil, well, that just supports North American pricing. Also, we've talked before about naphtha from oil being the driver of Asia, high cost Asia polyolefins, PE and PP. And if oil is going to go up $10 more than we think, well, typically that's a five cent increase, assuming demand doesn't change, profitability on a cents per pound basis doesn't change. The Asia producer needs to raise his price five cents to keep up with that $10 move up and probably three to four cents to keep up with the polypropylene uh, margin as well. So higher oil, higher import costs to bring in product here. The best demand that we've seen in a decade for both PE and PP in North America, all those in our view support a uh, a softer landing, uh, so to speak. So, you know, the 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 new level of profitability is a big talking point for polyolefins. And then I'll say the other thing is just logistics. We talked about the import issue with price and cost. There's also an export issue that's going on right now in North America. We think it's to the tune of about 25 percent respecting polyethylene, which is the major net exporter. We don't really export a ton of uh, polypropylene compared to polyethylene. Give you a good example. Export volume should have been 2 billion pounds in December for polyethylene for Canada and the USA in a normal market condition. It was closer to 1.5. And we believe that 500 million pounds or 25% or, um, you know, near, call it, um, three and a half days of industry inventory, that's how much it's worth, was constrained because of this issue we have and these delays with exports. So then the question is, is how long will that, that last and how long, what will that do to operating rates? And the short answer is it's going to lower operating rates. And we think it lasts into the summertime, getting more into the middle end of the third quarter before we start to hit that 2 billion pound mark again. And that's important because we do have new capacity coming to the North of market with shale, with Baystar, with Nova, and we need exports for this business model to function. So that's something that we're keeping an eye on, uh, definitely. I see. Um, let's talk about crude oil since we're noticing a theme here. Um, what do you guys think is going to happen to prices? Well, that's the $100 question, as Steve put it in one of his slides, right? Uh, crude oil, it, it's dominating the headlines, right? Uh, as it should, because it sets the price for almost everything. Um, right now, there is a lot of geopolitical risk, uh, so that the risk premium is is in full effect uh, for, for crude oil. And, and the risk is, yes, clearly Russia and the Ukrainian situation is clearly in play, but then also, I think when you look at supply versus demand on the crude oil side, just uh, OPEC's not going to be able to keep up with the level of demand growth that's coming, and so then it's largely dependent on the U.S. producer uh, to see if they can cover the short on the demand on the supply side, and that's the hundred dollar question, right? Because do producers go in and start adding rigs and start drilling a whole bunch of wells and try to bring as much uh, production on as fast as possible. 
I think we're living in a different era. It's not 2012 and 2013 anymore. We're 10 years later, the oil producer has become much more disciplined. And it's become much more disciplined because Wall Street has, uh, has, is largely fed up with the lack of profitability and they, they want to see returns. And I think that's where these producers are coming from. They're living within their means. They are not drilling uh, as aggressively as they have before. I mean, CapEx is up. I mean, some of the preliminary CapEx figures that have been released, uh, CapEx is, is, is higher than last year. But it's nowhere near the level that one would think to get oil production to grow 2 million barrels by the end of the year. I mean, I, I just don't think we're there. And, and so really, that's why we have all of those lines of forecast that the crude oil guys have, because uh, it's an ultimate wild card as to where uh, crude oil will, will ultimately land. And then if we talk specifically about OPEC, OPEC just, they don't have it in the tank. I mean, it's really Saudi Arabia and the UAE that have any spare capacity and there's always outages that are coming. Um, and you can almost plan for a certain number of outages that happen throughout the year. And, and really when you have all of that, a tight supply demand environment, and you compare that with, with what we had in the past. And then on top of that, you have this Russia and Ukraine situation where Russia produces a, a fair amount of oil. I think they, you know, nine, 10 million barrels a day. I'm, uh, I'd have to look at the numbers because I've been spending more of my time on the olefin side. But I mean, I think they produce a fair amount of oil if they're gearing up for uh, a prolonged incursion into Ukraine, which I don't think is our base case. But if they are, then that will significantly impact oil prices, which is why you see um, the the different lines that we drew on the uh, on the chart. Um, the other thing that I'll mention is the high gas prices, right? So that's something that Steve touched on. The high gas price situation in Europe is also is also pretty interesting because if these sanctions, if they had any teeth, then it would really affect um, the the gas situation for Europe, but they've largely sanctioned a pipe that doesn't have that doesn't have any line fill in it yet, and they're not supposed to be filling the line until later in the summer. So really, um, when they're looking at sanctioning Russia for uh, this Ukrainian situation, um, there hasn't been a lot uh, as it relates to energy yet, um, and that will impact producers in in Europe. And I know we did get a, a couple of questions of that in the in the chat uh, during the webinar, but really for right now we're we're not expecting that big of an issue as it relates to gas. Um, we'll have to wait until the summer to see what happens then. But as far as crude oil goes, yeah, I mean we're we're marching close to hundred dollars, and it could even be higher than that later in the summer, which I think bodes well for the U.S. producer, provided that they can get the pounds out of the U.S., uh, they'll have the advantage. Ethane prices are still low. They're tracking natural gas. There is a spread there between ethane and gas, uh, but it's it, it's not that large yet. Um, thus far, we've been able to produce uh, as much ethane uh, as the 
industry can consume. In fact, we had a record level of ethane consumption uh, for January. And even still, ethane prices really went only five, six cents above gas uh, throughout that time period. So the U.S. producer, uh, and I'm talking specifically for olefins and ethylene in particular, the U.S. producer should be able uh, to crank up operating rates and really uh, assert their will on the global market, especially in a $100 oil environment. Again, it goes back to whether they can get this stuff out of the country. And I think, Joel, I mean, what, what do you see from a, from a $100 oil perspective? Do you see people changing behavior here in the U.S. at $100 oil? Or do you see people changing behavior internationally as it relates to polymers consumption? Not yet. And if you look at 2021, you can make a crazy correlation that raising the price gets you more demand for polyethylene and polypropylene. So we we really haven't seen demand destruction because of price globally, regionally. It's got to be coming at some point, right? At this uh, inflation, we've talked about it. If you look at your daily lives, if you've gone to the grocery store, if you bought a Valentine's car, if you need to buy a vehicle, good luck. I mean, prices are well beyond uh, what is being reported in the markets as normal. You said a Valentine's Day card. I'd love to get a car for Valentine's Day, man. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I went to Walmart and bought what I would consider a regular card, and it was near $10. And I remember thinking last year when I bought the same card, and this is this is the price on the card. This isn't the manufacturer trying to mark it up because of supply and demand. And I remember a year ago when it was five bucks, I thought that was crazy. But costs are, costs are up. And I have yet, I, we do hear anecdotal stories from our colleagues in Asia and some places where yes, price is starting to affect demand, but we really hear more issues on labor force, on logistics. We hear more today, especially in North America, about not being able to meet the demand because they can't get the third shift, because they can't find workers because of sickness, because of whatever the reason. So I think the answer is we'll see, because last year we did not have $100 oil, but we had pricing of polymers that probably corresponded to pricing well over $100 in oil. And uh, and yet demand was at the best we've seen in since 2010. So there has to be a point at which higher oil results in higher transportation and fuel costs and higher costs of other things that are made from oil. And there is a demand pullback globally, regionally that that has to exist. But we haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen it yet. But there is more and more concern most people don't think you can just keep going that these markets at some point the the consumer will just not buy it's one thing to be able to replace it with paper other plastics glass and it's another thing just to not buy the the item so it's it's got to be coming but we haven't seen it yet i think is the answer to the question so one one thing i wanted to ask you joel because you, you did mention that uh, or at least in the webinar it, Uh, Nick talked about uh, producer restraint on the polymer side and and protecting this market. I mean, do you really think that's possible? I mean, I know we got a few questions in the chat about that that type of behavior, especially when you got a shell bringing up a significant amount of capacity. You have Sabic now that's that's in the market selling commodity pounds. I mean, 
do you really think that there will be producer restraint, especially now that we're kind of export limited for for the foreseeable uh, few months here? I mean, do you well, really think there's, there's there's different ways to, to to look at this one? Let's let's kind of peel the onion back a layer at a time. Yes, near term, there's definitely some constraints in export, but at the same time, there's some natural constraints on production. People don't have the rail cars that they need. So resin producers right now haven't been had to make that hard decision to cut back rates because the market's done it for them. If you don't get rail cars, you have to slow down. If you can't get certain additives or certain comonomers to make certain flavors, you you have to slow down. So so far the market has had kind of a natural mechanism to slow production and, and it's these logistics issues. Now, going forward, when we get past these, the argument is, will domestic producers take prices below their export alternatives? And the answer that we've always had is, 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 is no. If you can make more money exporting, you will sell at contract mins domestically and you'll export more and you'll support prices. We've always seen that in this post-shale uh, dynamic where shale and naphtha, sometimes it, that spread gets closed a little bit, but it's always it's always been there. Now, we do think that resin producers, if they know that they don't have a threat other than themselves, in other words, a finished good can no longer come here at just that 10 cent gap between regions, and now it's double, we think domestic producers will be disciplined and manage their production around that as opposed to just going after themselves domestically. And there's just no, there's nothing really to gain by going after each other domestically in a finite market, as opposed to trying to balance that with their exports and their other global assets. That's another thing is the majority of the resin producers and polyethylene, especially the net exporters, they have other assets around the world. So they will manage their business accordingly to try to optimize profitability throughout their global footprint. So that's that's our view is we think they'll be disciplined and they'll take advantage of the higher cost of entry of, of both resin and finished goods that is new during this market correction that was not in the past in any of the other previous corrections. So Joelle, we kind of touched base a little bit on this already. Um, so this is kind of a mega question. Um, it seems polypropylene imports peaked in Q3 when freight rates were also the highest at the, the highest at that time. Was that due to seasonal demand pull or did polypropylene trade help bring the container freight higher? And how much uh, polyethylene and polypropylene trade as a percent of the overall container trade uh, to the US? Sure. So it's an interesting dynamic to say imports were very difficult and expensive in 2021. And then the next sentence say, but we had record level imports. The, the devil's in the details. So we did have record level imports, but they were in the scenario of pricing arbitrage the previous record between the regions was 36 cents between the North America price and the CFR China price. We approached 90 cents in August. So it took a near tripling of the previous record between regions to incentivize 
and overcome that increase in global freight to move product into the market. So another way to look at it is we should have seen a lot more imported material and much faster if it would have been a normal market. So the market was growing at the fastest clip that we've seen since 2010. Production, as we talked about on the webinar, was affected all the way going back to August and September of 2020 when the first hurricanes hit and production had never caught up. And so there was a need for material in the marketplace. And it took just a huge, huge ARB to allow for buyers and sellers to turn their deals together to make it work. And even, even with that, we still have clients who are telling us they're getting material today here in February that they ordered back in September, October of last year, and it's just now getting here. That's how difficult global logistics have been. So I think the message is, yes, on paper, we set a record, but the market was growing so fast in a normal market, we would have seen mechanisms kick in a lot faster. We would have seen more imports get here sooner. Prices would have never gotten that as high as they did because the local prices would have had to stop when that pressure came in from the from a, what should have been a much bigger wave of of imports. Yeah, there's also a timing aspect, right? It just so happened that uh, PP imports peaked in Q3, and that's when the freight rates were the highest. I mean, you, one could argue that because of the expanded um, uh, the expanded ARBs that they were already placing orders, but those orders got delayed and delayed and delayed, and then they finally appeared, right? I mean, one could argue there was a lag effect as well, right? That's correct. That's correct. So when you make the decisions, in many cases, you're committing to something that hasn't even been produced yet in Asia. So you have to wait 30 days for it to produce, be produced. And then because of shipping logistics, instead of shipping out 30 days from now, it ships out 16 days from now. Instead of getting to your port of choice, in, uh, in the West Coast in a few weeks, now it takes um, 60, 90 days to get there because of the backlog on, on ships. And you start doing the math on all the delays. And in many cases, you've, you've paid cash in advance for this. So yes, there is, a, there is a bit in timing. So the August and September import records of over 200 million pounds were based on decisions that were done basically 90 days before then. And, and that was when imports were a little easier to do. As I mentioned, people are getting imports today from orders that they placed in um, September, October. So uh, yeah, definitely a lag effect. Good point. That's uh, definitely an interesting situation. Um, another question that we got, what happens with the interplay between the USGC and Nor US Northeast given the new shell startup? Does this change export flows, for example, to Asia? Well, typically we see Asia being served the biggest volumes out of the Gulf Coast. They're, is a lot of investment, not a lot, but there's been investment done to take product from the Gulf Coast to Dallas, put it in bags and intermodal it via rail to the West Coast to get it to Asia as another competing mechanism. But the West Coast ports, it's been well documented, are just very, very uh, congested, delayed. So Shell's going to come into the Northeast with a focus on the East Coast exports. And East Coast exports tend to line up the best with West Europe. They'll probably have a little bit of a component with Asia, but they're going to be looking, I, I would assume, more towards the domestic market, of course. But from an export perspective, I would assume they'd be looking more towards West Europe. And what that does is it takes the existing suppliers who were serving the domestic market from the Gulf Coast, from Canada. They have to make the decision of exporting those pounds that previously went into that area or they have to slow down. And frankly, near term, we believe it's going to be a combination of both. 
we're not forecasting North America to be running at full rates here in 22 and 23 because of the global view of all the supply that's coming on with the with the demand that's currently being forecasted. So Shell will definitely make other producers make business decisions to export more, primarily to Asia, at a much less attractive net back than selling domestically or to slow down in so, lower operating rates. I guess, Joel, and this is probably my ignorance because I spend so much time feedstocks and olefins. Uh, is it is it economic to produce a pellet, rail it over to the coast, and then transload it into a, a, a shipping container and then have it exported to Europe? I mean, is it is it economic? Yeah, yeah. The ethane to naphtha spread is the driver and, yeah. and it's the it's it's the it goes back to the same thing that people saw in in 2011 2012 you know that spread has jumped as we've seen the oil forecast post 2014 come down i think um, back then many people didn't think we'd ever see 100 dollars oil again last i checked here this morning we were in the upper 90s for brent so 100 could be around the corner you talked about the discipline in the u.s shale which we never thought would happen here we are with here it is so the, the ethane to naphtha spread, while it varies and compresses and expands over time, that spread is thought to allow for a uh, ethane-based producer in the U.S. to be competitive in exporting, even when they're having to transload material, put it in super sacks, and, and, and move it. Typically, the freight going from the U.S. going to the east, whether it's Europe or, uh, or Asia, it tends to be much more attractive than the other way around. And it's usually because you want, it's well, not usually, you want to get containers back to that part of the world because of the imbalance in trade. There's so much more trade going from Asia to the West than us going to Asia that there, there's a, always a desperate need for those containers. And therefore, if you can somehow get things on those containers, super sacks, 25 kg bags, there's always there's always value there for US and Canadian exporters going in that direction. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Uh, thank you, Joel. Carlo, uh, my, ne my next question is for you. So during the webinar, your crude oil base scenarios showed $87 a barrel on average for 2022. Has that not changed after the Russia-Ukraine increasing tensions after this Monday? Yeah, I th because that's so new, I mean, the base case was uh -huh. developed uh, about a month, uh, not a month, a week ago. And so now that the Ukrainian-Russia tensions have flared up, I would assume that that base case scenario would move higher, closer to the red line that we saw um, in the slides. So there was a blue line and a red line. The blue line is the $87. I think we're probably higher than that. Um, and so I would expect the crude oil guys uh, this week to really adjust their uh, their outlook. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, it's definitely higher. It's something that I talked about extensively. I know Steve talked about it as well. That that is the risk, right? To uh, to the price forecast on the olefin side is higher uh, higher oil prices. Maybe not domestic ethylene so much because a lot of it is ethane based, right? So, but more international uh, ethylene prices are exposed to this, just given so much of the cracking complex internationally is is naphtha based um and also clearly propylene right because propylene is is um 
is linked to oil. And as I mentioned on the podcast it, or the podcast, the webinar, the uh, the propylene to crude oil relationship has has normalized, right? So, yeah. So with the higher forecast, uh, you know, expect a higher price price track uh, going forward. So, Joel, any line of sight about when the logistics could come back to a certain normality with respect to exports? I know there are a lot of concerns about logistics. Yeah, we think it gets better a little bit each month, but we really need to get uh, the industry really needs to get back to that two billion mark on the export. And there's, there's a lot of dynamics at play. What kind of domestic demand do you get? What kind of production do we get? Mm -hmm. But in simplest terms, by the time shale comes onto the marketplace the second half of the year, we really need to be able to, as an industry, get to that two billion pound export month uh, pretty easily to make room for the, the the new capacity. So our current estimates right now we have in August September that we're that we're back there, and between now and then we're going from that 1.5 number in December, which really needed to be two uh, billion if you want to run full we think it incrementally gets better each month. So the thinking right now is the second half of the year for U.S. Uh, exports will look a lot better than uh, than the first half. Yeah, and I think it's important, Haya, that we delineate that container freight versus uh, liquid freight, right, bulk freight, because yeah. um, these shipping constraints have largely not uh, appeared on the monomer side. Right, so we haven't seen the same impediments as we've seen uh, on the container shipping side, um, but even still, uh, that has given rise to this whole east versus west uh, dynamic, especially on the polypropylene uh, or polypropylene propylene side of of the equation. That's right. Um, another concern um, from the questions that came on uh, the webinar Q and A box was Cracker Startups. So can you guys tell us a little bit what is keeping Cracker Startups from starting up? Yeah, so I, I think that question's really hinting at uh, a, a large Cracker in Port Arthur that should have started up in the uh, in the summertime period. I think that's the base star Cracker. Uh, they, they've suffered a number of technical challenges. Um, I, I don't want to talk too much about it on a, on a podcast, but um, They've had to deal with a lot of technical issues and uh, things not working right. Uh, so, which stands in stark contrast to the Gulf Coast Growth Ventures Cracker, um, that they started up pretty uh, pretty methodically and, and quite quickly, actually, right, uh, compared to what their original startup date was. So they've operated smoothly, uh, based our. Uh, startup hasn't gone as smoothly. I mean, we expect them to start start up this uh, this summer, uh, but you never know, it could be delayed. And then on top of that, I mean, you never know what's gonna happen with Shell. I mean, they've that project's been going on for a decade, right? And it's really, uh, it's really in the, in the middle of nowhere and it's really the, a pioneer in terms of cracker startup in the middle of uh, the Appalachia, uh, mountain range, right? I mean, I'm exaggerating, but you get you get my point. It's it, it's in Pennsylvania, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if that starts up without a hitch. Uh, the problem with that is it's it's integrated with PE, and they by and large have to start up in tandem with each other because there's nowhere else to go with the ethylene. 
Um, so that'll have some challenges as well. And I know, Haya, there was a question on uh, mm -hmm. on the chat about uh, turnarounds and turnaround schedules. And yeah, largely yeah. the delays in turnarounds that we have factored into uh, to our outlook. Um, so check out the monthly supplement uh, on the NALO weekly or the NALO monthly. Uh, check out the supplement because we do update that pretty regularly on the op schedule. Um, what about you, Jawal? Would you like to weigh in on the on that? Yeah, so, so we currently are not forecasting the strongest operating rates that we've seen for PE and PP here near term. And that lines up with what I mentioned earlier, issues with the rail cars. And there's also planned maintenance on the cracker side. And the cracker is a very integrated system. Some sites for polyethylene, polypropylene have more flexibility than others to get their ethylene and propylene. Some sites, if the, if the supply of ethylene and propylene goes off, the PP goes off, others it, it doesn't. So we've accounted for, we believe, the cracker turnaround season and the operating rates that we're, that we're showing, which are, are constrained. So it, it does line up well with the restriction of rail cars and, and the current issues with logistics on PE exports. The operating rates are in line with what you would expect given the rail car issues and also the the cracker turnaround season so we think we've accounted for that so lastly what are some of the big unknowns going forward uh specifically long term what do you think well i'd love to talk about it but <laughs> with wpc coming up uh, you're gonna just gonna have to wait and attend wpc so you can hear that i mean you know, that's me plugging our conference, but really from a long-term perspective, I think uh, I can tell you what my presentation will be about. It, it's mostly talking about the energy transition and how that'll affect propylene in particular. I know that Steve will touch on some of the sustainability issues as it relates to ethylene. Because that's more of a long-term conference, you know, what what's the future look like for olefins, polyolefins, and all the chemicals? I think that's a good venue to really um, listen in on what we think is going to happen in the future as it relates to the long-term outlook. Um, but yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, definitely. And it's finally going to be held in person. After yes. last year, we had a virtual. This year is going to be in person in Houston, Texas. So we look forward to seeing everyone there. Yes, and uh, hopefully, hopefully my suit still fits because you know, after, <laughs> after so of, long <laughs> <laughs> sitting in shorts and a t-shirt yeah. <laughs> doing client calls. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if it still fits. I'm sure you'll be fine. Um, thank you, Carlo and Joel, uh, for coming on here and answering questions right after. I know it's been you've been sitting for quite a while, probably. No, it's great. Um, happy to do it for podcast listeners. So um, we hope to keep growing the audience. Yes, certainly. Thank you. Appreciate Thanks, it. Joel. All right. No problem. See you guys. Take Bye -bye. care. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And give us a like or leave a review if you enjoy it. Check out ihsmarket.com slash chemical for more information on subscribing to our services. And if you have questions or want us to cover something more specific, you can send us an email. Until next time. <laughs>